You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. One of the common names for America is the land of opportunity, which I absolutely love. And then at the same time, um, all the opportunities can sometimes seem a little terrifying with the sheer number that we have. We are going through this with colleges right now for my oldest, and in their mind, uh, well, actually, she does a good job, but I think what young people are being taught is you gotta pick your college and your major that is going to be your job for the rest of your life. Now, I was a Spanish major, okay? So that doesn't really hold, but in their mind, it's like, I gotta pick the thing, I've gotta study the thing that's going to be, like, this is a huge decision, and then we go, great, so just pick your college, Uh, here's about 5,000 that you can choose from in America. That can be a little overwhelming. And then then once you do, then you go, you gotta pick your major now. Here's another gazillion different majors and all these different opportunities. And sometimes it can just be a little little scary uh, and we can get maybe analysis paralysis, so to speak, of trying to figure out what is it that I'm supposed to do in this time. I think especially for, for young people. Um, when you get choices, and I, you know, there's times with choices where you go, I have two choices, maybe that's all it is, and you go, I could totally justify A, or I could totally justify B, they're both good choices, which one am I going to do? And trying to figure out what do we do in the midst of those kinds of things. Now for us too, with this college stuff, it is oh, sending papers off for financial aid and sending things off for scholarships and just waiting and waiting and waiting to get things back. And then you have all these emotions of the joy of like, yeah, you got accepted and, and got a scholarship. Well, surely we'll get it. No, we didn't even get accepted to this one or we didn't get the scholarship we thought we were gonna get. And just the, the ups and downs of going through this and going, why did this happen and then this happened too? And sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And so you've got these, these different choices. What do we do? We've got sometimes just waiting and waiting and waiting. And sometimes while we're waiting, we're just wondering why in the world did that happen? Well, I, I call all these things, I just call it the mystery. Just walking through the mystery. What do we do when we're walking through the mystery, because you've got the same thing, I'm quite sure, if you're wondering, well, where is God in you know, whatever happened in your life or a friend's life or something like that, or you've got, I'm sure you have choices all the time trying to decide and saying, which one should I do? And you could justify either one and, or waiting, and it might be waiting for health results or a deal to close or a promotion to come or, or whatever it is. And what do we do in those moments of mystery? Well, what I used to do was after I, I tried to just do everything that I can, um, then I would just sit alone with my thoughts, which is not a smart strategy, I'm just going to tell you. When you're waiting, when you're wondering, when you're trying to make decisions, and to, so to just sit. And so I think a lot of people do that, and then we figure out real quick, that's not a good idea, And so sometimes it's I'm going to numb myself with my phone. It'll just be something that'll sort of keep me busy or I'll numb myself and just watch some mindless entertainment or something like that. And those are fine. But the problem is if I just go busy myself, busy myself with some of that, or I go just busy myself with work or with a hobby or something like that, if you've got this picture like this cup of mystery that's filled, if you just go and do that, all it does, like you come right back and the cup of mystery is still exactly as full as it was before. You just sort of forgot about it for a little season. And so I look at it and go, there's got to be something better than that. Like, isn't there a way in the midst of the mystery that we can actually grow in our 
faith. And we know those times of mystery are good because listen, if we don't have mystery, we don't need faith. If you don't have mystery, you don't need faith because you've got all your answers. You've got everything you need. You don't really have to trust anything. It's just all laid out already. And so we know that those times are, are good, but it, it's interesting. Like some of the most faith-filled people that I, that I know, that I've met, are people who don't know where their next meal's coming from because they're constantly just having to trust and trust and trust. But let's be honest, times of mystery can sort of stink if you're like me. I'm not patient. Um, I want answers. I kind of would rather have just control over this. Instead of having to trust, I'd rather you know, kind of do this with it. But I also know that that's how my faith grows is in those times of mystery. And so what do we do in those times of mystery? And that's why John in the book of Revelation at the very beginning gives us a way to work through times of mystery. Here's what he's going to say. John, the author of Revelation, shows us what to do. He's going to say, in times of mystery, remember who God is and what he has done. In times of mystery, remember who God is and what he has done. We remember the God of the gospel, and then we remember what he has done, the good news of what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so there's two parts to this. We're going to do one this week and one next week. But if you're not familiar with this book, it is, um, it is written by John the Apostle, who wrote uh, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and it was written in the 90s um, under Domitian. Emperor Domitian. Domitian had about a 15-year reign from 81 to 96, and John wrote this near the end of the reign of this emperor, Domitian. So he was, oh, Domitian was crazy. He, had new, he was completing these designs for his palace in Rome with one hand, and in the other hand, he is just violently uh, persecuting and even executing Christians. So a little bit about Domitian. So you had um, a couple emperors before him, Caligula and Nero, that had tried to declare themselves to be gods, and it, it didn't really take. And Domitian said, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it right. And so he made all the subjects. Everybody in the kingdom would have to bow down to him and worship him. When he was walking, uh, they would have to come up and kiss his feet publicly. And so he had this deification of himself, and he spread it throughout the entire empire. Um, in fact, and this was the very important thing, they, um, in that time, they would have to go to the temple and get a pinch of incense and walk in and say, Kaiser Curios, which is Latin, Caesar is Lord. Kaiser Curios, and they would drop it in. And if you didn't do that, you would face the harshest of punishments. Now, there were two groups of people that couldn't do that with a clear conscience. Everybody in Rome could do it just fine. They could go up and declare, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. They could say that, Caesar is Lord, because um, they just had this pantheon of gods anyway, and they were all polytheists, and so they went, we already worship like 40 gods, what's 41? And so it was basically, I'm going to add that to what I'm already doing. And so most people could just do it, but two groups couldn't. The Jews couldn't do it because... Uh, they worship Yahweh, and there's, they are monotheists, and so he is the singular God. But the Jews in that day also had a little bit of political clout, and so they had a formal exception granted to them by the Roman Empire to not have to say that. So they were fine. But who else couldn't go in and declare Caesar to be Lord? Christians who did not have an exemption from the Roman Empire. 
That's the shoulders we stand on is people that were brave enough to not walk in and say, Caesar is Lord. They say, we worship God, we worship God alone. And we think John was exiled because he refused to do this. So he was exiled to this little island of Patmos. Patmos. Um, it's, uh, it's about 24 square miles. That's the best map I got because I wanted to show you relative to where everything is. You see Greece over here to your left. You see Turkey over to your right. And you can barely even see the little island of Patmos there. It's 24 square miles. To give you an idea, Rhode Island is 1,200 square miles. Patmos is 24 square miles. It's this small island where John got exiled. It's um, volcanic. It's isolated, not tons of people. It's a really good place for exiles. Caesar Augustus would start sending his political enemies um, to this island, and it looks like others, like Domitian, just sort of kept the practice going. There was physical punishment sometimes, some, some whippings and beatings, and there was real hard labor, rock quarries and sulfur mines and things like that. And John is this elderly man, so you can think about how difficult this would be for him. So he didn't say Caesar is Lord, and he gets exiled to this island and is having this miserable life of exile for his faith. So be John this morning on that little island. We know that eventually Christianity triumphs. He didn't know that. He thought maybe his ministry was over, perhaps, but here he is getting perhaps the greatest task of his life to pen this last book of our Bible. You talk about a guy who's sitting in mystery. This is a guy who's saying, I was faithful to you, God, and now you are permitting this to happen. And so if John can, can personally and also help the first century Christians walk through the mystery of what's happening... It's gonna help us today, I believe. So look at this. It's verse four says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, and then pause right there and think, what would the next part of your letter be? If you're John and you are exiled for your faith, you know what's going on. Maybe it would be John to the seven churches who are in Asia. I'm just as confused as you are as to why I'm here. John to the seven churches who are in Asia. Well, you probably have a lot of questions, and frankly, I have a lot of questions myself. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, boy, it really is terrible here on Patmos. It's lonely, it's painful. I have no idea how long it will last. I have no idea if I'll ever make it off this island. Or John, to the seven churches who are in Asia, boy, hey guys, I could really, really use a favor right now. What does he say? John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Grace is God's unconditional, gracious favor that he gives us freely out of the abundance of his love. And peace is two things. It's the right relationship we have with God, but it's also the present experience of peace that we have in this world, knowing that we are right with him. And so John, on this island, starts by saying, grace to you, peace to you. How can he write like that? Well, I think it's because he remembers who God is and what God has done. So first he says who God is. Look at what he says. Grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So we're looking for who God is. And he just gave a Trinitarian formula about God. 
He says, the, for, from him who is and was and who is to come, in this context, I was talking about God the Father, and I'll show you why in just a second. And it says, the seven spirits who are before his throne. The only way to be near the throne, if you've read this book, the only way to be near the throne is to be God, to be holy, and seven is this number of perfection, and so you think of this perfect, holy spirit, and we know this is, he's saying, the Holy Spirit. So this is the Father, this is the Spirit, and then it says, and from Jesus Christ. So he starts out, and he reminds them and us here of the fact that our God is triune, we call, that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, in case you're thinking that's really confusing, correct, it is. In fact, in the early church, they kind of, when they started seeing this, they kind of took one of two approaches. One was, we'll just call it a, um, a heretical approach, which is they went, well, that doesn't make sense to me. It sounds like we worship three gods, or, um, or you know, sometimes they would do something like this to say, well, um, God, the, the Trinity is like um, water, where sometimes it's steam, maybe that's God the Spirit, sometimes it's you know, ice, and that's God the Father, and then you know, Jesus is water, or something like that. Like they would try and have these different, these different ideas, or you know, it was God the Father in the Old Testament, it was Jesus in the New Testament, and then it's God the Spirit going forward, you know, those kinds of things. Those were um, complete heresies in the early church. Um, we, we worship one God and three persons. The big problem there is then you get to Jesus' baptism and you see the spirit descending like a dove. You see God the son in the water and then you hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. You hear God the father speaking. And so um, that was one approach that people took. And then you, you, know what, you know what happened a lot though with Christians? Is it just didn't, for some it just didn't pose a problem. They had a place in their mind for this thing that is transcendent and incomprehensible when it comes to God. And so they were more, much more comfortable than we are in the, in the West and in our day, post-enlightenment, of just saying, I don't know and I don't understand it. But it makes sense that there's something about God that I can't fathom. And now our tendency, isn't it, to go, if I can't understand it, like I really need to be able to understand this. I wanna be able to explain it to somebody. Good luck. I want to be able to fully grasp it in my own mind. Good luck. What they did in the early church until a guy named Tertullian, we think, is the first one to come up with the phrase of the Trinity in about 213. Um, they would just read what the Bible says and they would just teach what it says before we got, they even got to this word Trinity. It's important that we have a space to just say, I'm okay I'm okay not having that answer, but I know what the scriptures teach, that there's one God. I'm a, I'm a monotheist, but it's Father, Son, and Spirit. And instead of that leading us to doubt, to let that move us to worship. Isaiah says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It might be a fool's errand to try and figure out all the nuances of the Trinity, to try and come up with some other perfect image of what that is so we can settle it in our own minds instead of just bowing down and just worshiping and saying, you are unlike anything else, and I trust it with everything I have. 
That's the first thing that John's doing. I don't want you to miss that. He says, grace, and, grace to you and peace from him who is, was, and is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. And look what he says about this person of Jesus Christ. He says, the first thing he says, he's a faithful witness. Then he says, the firstborn of the dead, and then the ruler of kings on earth. So faithful witness is the word, it's the word martis, where we get the word martyr. And so this really carries the idea of the persecution and the heartache and the hardship that Jesus especially had to walk through in his life. Jesus was abandoned by his friends. Jesus was betrayed by someone very close to him. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was hung on a cross. He went through and he suffered the greatest of trials, the greatest of persecution. But he's not just this martyr, so to speak, or this witness. It says he was the faithful witness. That in spite of all that, he lived perfectly. He did it perfectly. He's faithful his entire life. Satan took him out in the desert and tempted him. Like if there was ever a time that he could have given in to temptation or, or it would have been easy to give in to temptation, like we, we wouldn't have made it to three temptations, friends. We'd have just walked out there and we'd have been, you know, because he was, uh, if you remember the temptation of Jesus, or temptation of Jesus by Satan, he walks out and he's hungry and we'd have been like, whatever, just give me food. Like I'm hungry. And Satan goes out and he starts tempting him in all the ways that should just get him. And Jesus just passed all those tests. We would be like Adam. You can do anything you want, just don't touch that one tree. Now, which tree did you say? And we would head right for it. And here's Jesus passing the test perfectly and being willing to come to earth and suffer all the hardship. He's leaving the comfort of heaven to come to the pain of earth, the life that he knew he was going to have, that he knew he was gonna die, that he knew he was gonna suffer. Why would he do that? And the only two reasons that we can give, obedience to God the Father and love for you and me. He is the faithful witness. He is the one who came to earth, was hurt, persecuted, and everything, yet lived in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. So you and I, who are often unfaithful witnesses, can be made right with God. He's the faithful witness. The firstborn of the dead. Firstborn's a hard term for us to understand. You can think of the firstborn was the one who would get all the inheritance, and then all the stuff is now his, Okay, so, so you think of firstborn, it's really, um, it's really closely connected to sovereignty. So for example, he talks ab about David in the Old Testament. He says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love, I will keep him forever. Pray and my covenant will stand firm for him. So firstborn is this idea of sovereignty. And it says he's the firstborn of the dead. Colossians says Jesus is the sovereign or the firstborn of all creation or over all creation. So what he's saying here is he's saying that when he says firstborn of the dead, he's saying that he is sovereign over death, that he is sovereign over death. And also we'd say in life. That's what Jesus did, that he conquered death, that one day he will destroy death forever. That's Christ, that's what John is reminding them of and that's what he is being reminded of as he's here, that, that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness and he is the one that is victorious over the worst thing that you and I can imagine. But there's more. He says he's ruler of kings in the earth. How great would this have been for the, earthly, for the early Christians, by the way? The ruler of the kings of the earth, that God is the highest power that anybody can possibly imagine, that he is not term-limited, 
that he's not in danger of ever getting voted out of office or assassinated or being involved in some scandal where he has to remove himself. He will always and forever sit on the throne. In fact, the, thr- the, um, the uh, rod that it says he carries is a rod of iron, as opposed to when it talks about other kingdoms, it uses all these other, um, all these other minerals and metals and things like that that are perishable. The rod of iron is the idea that he rules and reigns forever. Any, any high power, there's one that is higher than that. Like I picture, um, I picture at the opening of the New Testament where you've got Mary and Joseph and they've got um, the baby Jesus, but he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but they're not near Bethlehem. And so I picture Caesar Augustus, the most powerful in the world, you know, sitting there going, oh, I know. I'm going to, I want to tax my empire. I want them to all have to go back to their hometown so I can take a census. And I will just write in my quill or whatever he's writing in and all of the empire will move at the very stroke of my pen. And we know what's happening behind the scenes is the Trinity is sitting in heaven going, it is time for Christ to be born and we're going to move him to Bethlehem. Let's use Caesar Augustus to do that. God is in control. Who's in control when Christ is standing before Pilate? Remember when Pilate tells him, he says, he says, I'm the one with authority over you to sentence you to death or to give you freedom. And Jesus just finally speaks up and says, you have no authority over me if it wasn't given to you by God. Jesus is the one with authority. Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on Earth. And so when we're in this time of mystery, we can fill that time of mystery by remembering who God is. What's a mystery to us is not a mystery to him. I'm so glad. If you're in this time of mystery, think about it like this. These things that we know about God here, and we know they'll be true here once we get through this time of mystery, they're also true in the middle of the mystery Sometimes it's just hard to remember those things to be true. And so the challenge here today as I'm reading this is to figure out how can we take these times of mystery and how can we, instead of just numbing our minds or just sort of avoiding the issue and coming back to a cup that's still full, how can we come back to a cup that is just maybe a little smaller? Our bent may be to do things and fill things with Busyness, And sometimes it's just a grasp for control. At least it is for me quite a bit. So how do we do this? I, I was with some, um, some pastors at my last church, and we had a, a missionary come in from a country that I cannot name. But he came in, and he is part of the underground church over there. And let's um, listen to this story. So he was there uh, sharing that they are praying about going to share the gospel with um, certain like kind of higher up political and military leaders in their nation, okay? And they didn't know, they, they had just sort of had this burden that they need to do that. I mean, anybody's welcome, but they were saying, what if we intentionally started to go do this? So I can't say the country, I'm sorry. But um, in this country, uh, he's, he's sharing this story with us. We're in America, he's just telling us the story. He was overseas, he was coming back here on furlough. And, um, and he said, so we had, and he said, we got all the people, which was hundreds of people. And he said, we just uh, gathered together to pray. There were a few other circumstances, but the main issue facing them was we feel burdened to get a little louder about this because now we're about to take a risk and we're about to go and openly profess faith to people that might want us dead for professing this faith. 
So he's sitting here telling a story of, so we, we, did, we just gathered the church for prayer. That's what you do, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's totally what we do, right? Sometimes. I hope so. And so he's telling this story, and they, that he said the elders wanted to get everybody together, and they were very convicted. They said, we want everybody who's going to come to be physically on their knees before God for as long as we pray. And so he's telling these stories. There was an elderly man that came in and could barely like make it in, and they're like, oh, he's not gonna be able to kneel, but I guess he'll just sit or whatever. And these two high school boys went over and got this man and knelt next to him and threw his arms across their shoulders so he could pray with them and he could be on his knees with them. These are the stories this guy is telling us. And he's going on and on and on about this and they are just, they had such a mystery, such a, what do we do? And I just remember going, wow. <laughs> like, I can't believe this. I mean, there's story after story. And the guy sort of said, uh, said, you, you said why'd you say wow? You know, because it was more normal to him. And my response was something to the effect of, when you have this big decision, when you have this big mystery, and this is at the church that I, that I was then, um, you, your instinct was to have a prayer gathering. Most of the churches in the West would have had a strategic planning session. Is that what happens when you get in mystery? They had, I asked, I said, how long was it? And he's like, it was like an hour or two. I was like, that's not a good rounding error of like an hour or two. That's a big difference. Like 100% more, which one is it? He's like, I don't know, an hour or two. I wasn't watching my watch. I was like, oh yeah, you might want to watch your watch. It makes sense. And he said, they just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And they wanted them on their knees to remind them who God is and who we are. And by the way, they are now sharing with politicians at some of the highest levels in a Muslim-majority country, I can say that. What do we do when we have the mystery? Their instinct was to hit their knees. Probably, if you're like me, our instinct is to get out a piece of paper and make a pros, cons, to make a, make a plan. Plans are good. I'm just not gonna rely on my plan. The first thing I wanna do is I wanna just figure out um, how can I submit myself to Almighty God in this time of mystery? I, have, I told you at the beginning about the different things going on with uh, just college and all that kind of stuff and trying to figure it out. And I have that all kind of swirling in my brain. And then um, I went out Thursday night, I went out to dinner with some guys here from Rockland and we were just, we were texting some kind of deep conversations, which is really difficult to over text. And so I, we just said, let's go get dinner. So we went and we got dinner and I had this, this cup of mystery of like trying to figure out what to do and I'm waiting on this and uh, I could justify so many different choices here. But we just went out to dinner and we just got Mexican food and we just sat there and talked for like three hours. And we were talking about some awesome things. We were talking about the things of God. We were literally like there were questions about salvation and the Bible and we're just, we're just talking about all these different things. And what happened as a result of that, I got home and I was so just filled by this. I didn't talk one time about college. I didn't talk about filling out your FAFSA or anything like that or trying to get money and nothing like that. All I did was we just sat and we just talked about God and we reminded ourselves of who he was and what he's done for us. And when I got home, the cup wasn't the same size. Not even talking about it, the cup was noticeably smaller. 
Because now I had the right perspective. What do we do in the mystery? How are, what are ways that you can think of God in these times of mystery to make that cup strangely small? And maybe it's even like things today, just coming here and just being reminded, yes, that's who God is and that's what he's done. And then singing with your brothers and sisters in Christ, all of a sudden, you just start to remember who God is. And maybe it just sort of blows the fog away. And maybe it's not so foggy moving forward. When we're in the midst of mystery, we remember who God is and what he's done. Another very tangible thing I'd like to ask is maybe you're going, well, my mystery, it's not great right now, but I know some people who have this, 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 this. Pray for them. You know, it's difficult when you're in the midst of it. It's difficult to, to do this sometimes. It's easier on the front side or the back side, but sometimes in the middle it's difficult. So what an opportunity to say we just want to pray for people that are walking through that mystery right now. And I think about maybe some of you who, who are, and if, if what you're walking through, if it feels like the word mystery is almost um, making light of what you're walking through, I don't mean to at all. It's a big, big, broad term. But I, I just pray that the God who has been your comfort would also reveal himself to be your great hope and your comfort in the middle of the mystery that you're walking through. When we're in the middle of mystery, remember who God is, and next week we'll remember what he has done. This will be up as we take communion today, but it says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>